What's up, you crazy bastards? Welcome to another week of E-Crime Bites. This is where I research the court documentation and roast the criminals so you don't have to. All right, so this week I'm bringing you Season 3, Episode 9. This is Hacking JFK Airport's Taxi Services. That might sound incredibly vague to you. And when I read it for the first time, I was like, what is this about? And I had to read into it because this sounds like a very interesting story. Let me give you a little bit of information about each of the individual to introduce you to the story. All right. So I'm going to introduce you to the main individual first. His name is Daniel Abayev. Okay. And I'm going to be calling him Daniel from now on because you know, if you've joined me on a few episodes, I use a lot of voice to text to make my closed captions. So... I go with the easiest name possible. So I'm going to be going with Daniel throughout here for him. Now, Daniel is from Uzbekistan. Okay. He is a cab driver. He is also a home health care attendant. He's a medical biller. Plus he flips goods on eBay. So if you don't know anything else about him, but you just learned that you got to think this guy He's a hustler, right? I mean, he's always working. He's either driving a cab or he's working at, um, you know, doing these medical billings or actually doing medical work for people. And when he's not doing that, he's probably sitting in front of the TV. Assuming he spends money on a TV and he's sitting there on eBay flipping goods that he, he's buying and selling, right? So this guy is also the mastermind behind the crime I'm going to bring you, all right? So beginning approximately November, 2019, this individual, Daniel, another individual that I'm going to introduce to you in a minute here and two Russian hackers. And I'll introduce you to the Russian hackers later on as well, but they all together decided they wanted to hack this dispatch system for the taxi services of JFK airport. Okay. Now I'm going to tell you, I'm going to explain how the taxi service works at this airport in a minute. I'm going to explain the whole hack and it's going to, I got pictures. Just hold on a second here, but I want to point out a few important things right now to you before I start showing you these pictures. One is they really wanted to hack in there. Okay. So it wasn't just, ah, let's try and see if we can get in from the outside while we're drinking a couple old Milwaukee's and eating cheese curls. No. They wanted to bribe somebody that worked there to take a flash drive, like a USB stick flash drive, right? Containing malware to put into this dispatch system. So if you don't know what that means, but you've seen the movie Office Space, same type of scenario, right? Where you put something on a stick and then you put it into a computer and then the malware does its thing and then the bad guys get their payoff, all right? That's what's sort of happening here where they want to pay an insider to put malware on the network so they can then make the money that I'm going to talk to you about here in a second. You need to take away here that they really wanted to do this. All right. They also didn't stop there. They also wanted to gain access or they tried to gain access, which was unauthorized. They didn't have authorization to do this, but they tried to gain access to this dispatch systems, Wi-Fi network. Just like when you go to your friend's house and you're like, Hey, can I have your Wi-Fi password? They didn't have the Wi-Fi password, but they tried to basically guess it to get on the Wi-Fi system. Because once you do that, then you can get to other resources that you normally can't get to 
outside the network, right? Well, I don't know if that didn't work or what. That was just kind of mentioned in the court paperwork, but they also had another plan. They wanted to steal computer tablets, like basically computers, connected to the dispatch system so they could do the stuff that I'm going to talk to you about. So I'm going to go down the path and tell you how they actually did this. And so your next question should be the same question that I have, which is why would they want to get in the dispatch system? You know, what in there, what could they monetize off this? Now, this is interesting. So I'm going to put a picture on your screen here and we're, I'm going to be flipping. This is going to animate. Okay. As I'm talking. So pay attention as you're watching. And this is audio listeners. I really recommend that you watch this on YouTube because I have pictures of everything like this that explains everything about the crime. All right. So for you video viewers, this is what I'm going to go through here. You've got your airport on the upper left-hand corner there. You got your cabs down in the lower left-hand corner there. Now, if you can imagine you have your passengers, they're arriving at the airport coming in from all these different countries, right? And you have probably hundreds, if not thousands of cab drivers that want to get these fares because if you've ever been to New York city where JFK airport is, you know, that transportation is very expensive. You're spending easily 50 to hundred bucks just to go one way someplace. So imagine there's parking lots basically full of cab drivers that would come to the airport to wait for people that would arrive on flights in order to pick up fares. So the airport doesn't want, you know, hundreds and thousands of cab drivers eventually probably getting into fist fights over who gets the next fare. They want an orderly process. And from what I understand, this orderly process is like a queue system where if you show up first, you're sort of first in line to get the first, the next passenger that comes out. And then as you pick one up, you know, it goes from there, right? So this is the process I'm going to describe to you now on our screen. You don't really have humans behind the scenes saying, okay, cab a go to terminal B to pick somebody up. It's all computerized. Okay. So that's why I'm going to put a, that's why there's a server on this organizational chart is it's a computer making these decisions and basically dispatching cabs from this queue of where they wait for passengers to the airport to pick up the passenger. And from what I understand, you can't really just jump the line. I, I guess physically you probably could, but you'd probably get in trouble. And you basically just go into that queue and you wait. And there's a computer system that's like, hey, Keith, go now to terminal A and pick up passenger at turnstile number three. Something along those lines. That's how I understood it. Okay, so this computer is now telling the, um, the cab drivers where to go, what terminals to pick these people up at. And that's what I'm just showing you on your screen that, you know, it basically, it talks to the, the, um, the cab driver who's next in line and says, Hey, it's your turn now go over to terminal B. And you see the cab driver goes up, is over now in terminal B gets his fare. Everybody else then says, Hey, I'm going to move up one spot. And now the queue continues, right? This is how it's supposed to work when someone's not screwing around with the process. Okay. And now we're going to be talking about Daniel who came in and wants to 
screw with this process and capitalize off it, right? And you could probably think of a bunch of different ways you could try to make money off this. They have an interesting method here. So now what I'm gonna do on your screen is you see this hacker outline in your upper right-hand corner, okay? Same pictures as before. You got your cabbies down at the bottom, you got your airport at the top, you got your, your dispatch server right in the middle there saying, hey, cab A, go to terminal B. But now we have the hacker next to it. And if we assume that this hacker gets access in some way, shape or form, and that's just my red arrow here, either it be on the malware, on the USB stick that we talked about, or any of the other ways, right? Or maybe it's just hacking in through a vulnerability on the outside. Maybe it's something like that. But they get access to this dispatch system. And now you can imagine, game on, right? So you have this dude roll up, orange taxi cab, right? He doesn't look like the yellow taxi cabs that I've been showing you so far. So already this fucker is suspect, suspect right out of the gate because he doesn't look like everybody else. His car looks different. What is he gonna do? Well, he's not like everybody else because he knows of a secret. He knows the secret that this hacker is in the system. So what he does is he says, hey, Mr. Hacker, here is $10, $10. Just move me to the front of the line, please. All right. $10 might not seem like a lot. Okay. And you know, I guess maybe in today it isn't, but you're going to see, first of all, it adds up. So it, when it's just one cab driver giving over $10 to jump the line, that doesn't seem like a lot of money. But if you have a hundred in a day or maybe a thousand in a day, and then you have multiple days because you know, airports never sleep, you're going to be making a lot of money. And so at this point, let's just assume the hacker gets their $10 and they say, yeah, Bob, I'm going to move you to the front of the line. All right. And how he does that after he has his $10 is he basically says, Hey, dispatch server, go to that car. That looks like no other cab out there. The orange one, go to that one and tell it it can pick up the next fare, which would be at some terminal. You know, let's just say it's terminal A at JFK airport. And then the orange van's like, hey, check that out. Zoop, zooms right up there, picks up their fare, which I imagine, I imagine if anybody else is sitting in that line and goes, how come that orange car pulls up, only waits here 10 minutes and then zooms up there and if there's maybe 10 people that notice this out of maybe a hundred taxi cabs, you would imagine that would get noticed. And I, part of me thinks that maybe this is how the scheme was caught because I imagine there were probably some pissed off people that were like, I'm not going to pay $10 every time to jump this line. Now, when you hear about $10 and I gave you a little bit of frame of reference where it doesn't sound like much to a person. Think about it from the cab driver's aspect. Now I left a little piece of the story out of here for you on purpose. Cause I wanted a little bit of, a little bit of oof when I give this to you, when they would go to these lots, they wouldn't just wait there like 10, 15 minutes. It wasn't like I showed up and no, oh, just call my wife real quick. All right. Yeah. You know, nice to see you. Nice to yeah, okay, I'll see you when I get home. Oh, my fares here. I gotta go. And they take off. No, it's not like that at all. From what I read, they can spend hours, multiple hours 
in this lot waiting on a fair, which again, I gotta be like, how much are these fairs that they go, I'm gonna give up a couple hours just to sit in this line for one goddamn fair. That to me seemed just out of this world when I read this. So I, I wanted to point that out and tell you that when they're paying $10, it might not seem like a lot, but it's a, it's a lot to the cab drivers because they can now service how many other other passengers in the day by simply paying what, like a, a, a latte or so. <laughs> I mean, it's not that much in the scheme of things. If he gets a 50 to a hundred dollar tip, it's only what, like 10%. I said a hundred dollar tip, but a hundred dollar fare. If he's paying $10 off at top of that, that's what, 10%? Not a ton of money off there. I mean, it still sucks, still sucks. But anyways, that, my friend, is the scheme. This is the scheme that we are talking about throughout here. And I hope you appreciate the pictures. I put a lot of time into that. And you're probably like, yeah, look at that. Perfect yellow cabs. Exactly how I'd imagine it when I close my eyes. Because the other day I was listening to one of my, or I was talking to a listener, one of the, uh, previous episodes and I realized I didn't have pictures to show you guys. So I'm going to try to do more pictures like this in the future. So you can kind of understand what's going on inside my head because sometimes I describe things in words and I realize they probably don't translate as well as a picture. So that my friends, that is what's going inside on inside my head when I'm reading these court documents. So my next question is, all right, all right, this has got a scale, right? You can't just have five cab drivers willing to pay $10 a couple times a day. That just, it doesn't scale for having to pay people to break into dispatch systems and pay insiders to put malware on the dispatch systems. You need hundreds and thousands of fares probably in a day to make this really worth, in my opinion, possibly going to prison, right? So, I introduced you up front, Daniel. Daniel was the one that was the mastermind of this whole scheme, but he had an accomplice and this is Peter Lehman. And Peter, he collected the money. So if, if I could categorize it, this is just my opinion. My categorization of this case, when I read the difference between these two criminals where you had Daniel up front and he was the mastermind. He basically orchestrated everything. But then he had Peter who just needed to make some money. And it was an easy way for him to work with Daniel, make some money. And I think if I can read between the lines, I think Daniel probably put Peter in the position of having to collect the physical money because that's the riskiest position in all these crimes that I've been bringing to you for the past year or so. So this is what, this is the type of position I imagine we're dealing with when we're, I'm discussing what Peter does here. So this is Peter Lehman. Now Peter's from <laughs> Kazakh. <laughs> I laugh. I'm sorry. This is the point of the case where it just went sideways for me. And I was like, Oh, I'm going with it. <sighs> He's from Kazakhstan. Okay. He's Jewish and he says he faced a lot of discri discrimination from it. So again, as I promised to you pictures, right? Pictures, how I envision this case is the picture I'm putting on the screen for you now, which is basically kind of a version of Borat, right? I, 
I enjoy the movie. I, I think it's funny. So I thought when we saw those two countries come together, when I had Uzbekistan earlier, because Kazakhstan come in now, I was like, I can't read the court research in this whole case and not have any Borat references. I can't because, you know, you know, Borat is from Kazakhstan. He hates Uzbekistan. He, and I, I apologize, you, Jews, but he hates Jews. So like when I read about the discrimination, I was like, oh my God, this is just like Borat. And, and then I went down this whole tangent of, I want to hear some Borat quotes. So I will give you my favorite quote that I read out of probably hundreds <laughs> in this. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is hard. He says, we use my iPhone fours hotspot and steal password from assholes in Uzbekistan. <laughs> All right. So yeah, the whole time, the whole time I'm reading this um, documentation, I'm just hearing the, uh, the um, Borat um, quotes and accent and everything in the back of my mind. And you know, things like wife cages, because yeah, I joke about this kind of stuff at home. My wife and I joke about this kind of stuff at home. Wife cages, huh? Kind of a good thing. Kind of a good thing. She doesn't agree. I agree. It's kind of a good thing in our household. I'm just joking. My last Borat joke, I promise. I promise you. But it it it, the, it touches home for me because parts of his movie were actually even loosely based on my life. And if you don't believe that, I do have a screen capture of when I proposed to my wife and asked her to marry me and I brought my wedding sack too. <laughs> Again, just joking. But anyways, all right, so that that's it. I had to get some Borat. It's out of my system now. I promise you that was the last Borat joke, but I will still be thinking about this throughout this whole episode. All right, so let's get back to Peter Lehman. So Peter, I found out by reading the court documentation, still owes. Now, I'm not going to give you the dollar amount yet. I want you to concentrate on that phrase that I just said. Still owes, meaning he's he's paid money already on this, okay? He still owes $120,000 on a taxi medallion. And I sat there for a minute and I was like, holy fuck. How could you afford a $120,000 taxi medallion and then try to even be a boss in the taxi service industry? I just, I couldn't imagine how you'd pay that off. That is amazing to me that it would cost that much. That, I just, it floored me when I read that in the court paperwork. So... In this scheme I brought to you, I told you about the hacks and how it works and stuff, but somebody had to collect the money and that was Peter Lehman. Okay. It's out of like Peter may have collected some physical cash at some points, but it sounds like the bulk of the cash was made through mobile payment systems. Okay. So two main sources, it was either physical money in my hand or it's something like Ah, Jesus, I don't even know what people use these days, like PayPal, something along those lines. My wife pays everybody. She doesn't let me have any money. So I, I, I know, I know this is a part of the research I can't do. I can't help you with. I don't know how to pay for things because my wife just does not allow me to have money. I, I got to ask for everything from her when we buy it. But that, that'll be a topic of another episode. I promise you. 
So Peter is collecting all these payments, $10 at a time, probably hundreds, if not thousands of transactions in a day and collecting it for this group of four people. Okay. Peter Lehman, the guy I just talked to you about, Daniel, the first guy I talked to you about, and these two Russian hackers that are still in Russia. So let me tell you about them. And I'm going to murder the names. You know, I try to always try once. Ser I, I like very seriously try to people's names once just to be, um, just because my name's Keith Jones and it's easy. So <laughs> I just try to be respectful. So the two Russians are, Go with me on this. It's Alexander Derabentic. And I'll spell it for you. It's D-E-R-E-B-E-N-T-C. Okay. I try my best. And Kirill, and that's spelled K-I-R-I-L-L. Shipulin, spelled S-H-I-P-U-L-I-N. Okay. Now. I try my best to only give you stuff that's in the court paperwork, okay? These two have been charged, but they have not been tried. They have not been arrested, okay? So know that going in. I just want to say that up front. Like, they could be tried and arrested later on, and the government goes, oh, they had nothing to do with this. Right now, the government thinks they had something to do with this. They've been... Tr they've been charged, but n as long as they stay in Russia, they will just continue to stay charged probably the rest of their life. As soon as they go to America or Canada or somewhere else that would probably extradite, they will probably be extradited to the U.S. and they will face the same charges of the two individuals that we're talking about here. Maybe even more because they are the hackers in this case. So one very small footnote here is they probably knew that law enforcement were coming eventually because the four of them, when they talked to each other, they actually used Telegram because of the encryption capabilities that I had. Just wanted to give that to the technical listeners out there. Sometimes you wonder, hey, what kind of technologies do they use? These four, according to the court paperwork, it was Telegram. Now, you can imagine they've got this whole enterprise set up, right? You've got um, Daniel, who's the mastermind. You got these two hackers in Russia who deal with getting access to the dispatch system. You've got um, Layman sitting there with the uh, collecting everybody's cash. It's 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 a corporation. I mean, it's like a, it's a full time job. So they they almost treat it like that. So they say to some of these people that would come in and say, "Hey, here's my ten dollars to jump my line." They would say, "Hey, I tell you what." I'm going to give you a freebie. It's like drugs, right? It's like, it's like drugs. It's like, I'll give you a freebie. I'll give you a freebie now. But you got to bring me two people that you know that were willing to pay me this $10 to jump the line every time. And I imagine some cab drivers were like, I just got to bring you some people and I can I can jump for free? And they're like, yep, that's, that's the deal. And they're like, well, fuck yes, that's easy, right? I mean, everybody sees us jumping the goddamn line anyways because none of us... None of us are being secret about this. So why not? Why shouldn't I not get a cut of this? Right? So there were some people that got to actually cut the line for free. And then they just brought, they recruited more people to come pay this, which I was like, Hey, they're really bu building their criminal enterprise at this point. This, this was, ah, I thought in, in a, now I know it's weird for me to say this, but in, in a, this impressed me. 
This impressed me. They had brokers that would buy lots, meaning like um, several skips in a line, in a lot. Like, you know how if like you bought a bus ticket, you might buy a bus pass of 10 tickets? Kind of like that. Like I'm gonna buy 10 passes to skip the line in this criminal scheme in bulk. So you'd have some brokers that would be like, yeah, I'll buy a thousand of those, right? And then basically, because they would buy a thousand, they'd basically market up to some people. And maybe they had a tag, taxi cab company of their own and they were like, well, I'm gonna use 200 of these of my own and then sell off a chunk of these, right? So there was, it wasn't just a criminal enterprise that I'm talking to you about, that I'm th this whole episode's about. There was a criminal enterprise based upon the criminal enterprise <laughs> because they were brokering these skips and lines, which I was just like, this is amazing. So, yeah, you have questions like, how do they manage this? How do you have hundreds and thousands of people possibly getting involved with this? I, it wouldn't be hundreds and thousands of people. It would be hundreds of thousands, hundreds and thousands of skips in a day is what I read. So if you extrapolate that down a little bit, it'd be like, but maybe 10 to 50 people a day, maybe, I'm guessing. They didn't say in the court paperwork. And then you multiply that out each day for months and months and months and a few years. That's that's a lot of people. That's definitely, that's hundreds of people, I would say. And again, we're just kind of guessing. The court paperwork didn't say for sure. Now, you need a way to talk to all these people. So they're basically in chat rooms, right? where they're kind of like the administrator of these chat, chat rooms. They didn't say specifically what it was. I, it could have been Telegram. It could have been Slack for all I know. But you can imagine they're the administrator, and when they're there taking money and moving people to the front of the line, you imagine there's probably a few hundred taxi drivers in there. They're like, shop open. And then all the taxi drivers go, hey, here's my $10, here's my $10 and they get medallion numbers from these taxi drivers once they take their money and they push them to the front of the line in the computer and they go pick up their fare and that's it. And then I imagine at some point the hackers are like, well, we can't do this anymore. We're either tired or we ran out of Mountain Dew or we just made enough money for today. On the chat, they go shop closed and they're closed for business for the day. So it was just like a shop. It was just like a corporation. They were marketing and they had hours of business and everything. It was absolutely just insane. And they didn't want their customers getting caught because if their customers get caught, that means eventually they'll probably get caught, right? So what are they to do to try to keep their shop open just a little longer? They tell their customers how not to get caught. So on the screen, I'm going to put a, a message that they sent to their their customers and their potential customers telling them how not to get caught by the police. Now I, I'm going to keep my opinions. No, no, I'm not going to keep my opinions to myself. There's not a lot of, of good information in here on how not to get caught from the police. Okay. In my opinion, there's not, they're just telling you what streets to stay off of. Okay. So audio listeners, I'll read it to you real quick. It just says, dear drivers, please do not wait at the gas station in JFK, and I think they mean the airport. 
They say, please do not go around the CTH lot, which I'm not exactly sure what that is. I imagine it's like a cell phone holding type of lot. And then it says, do not wait at Rockway Avenue. And they put an emoji for a police officer. And then they say, you have to be very, very carefully. And they put a couple emoji for police officers. So this is their message to their customers on how they're going to stay safe is stay off this street. Don't go by this lot and don't go around the airport too many times because you're going to draw suspicion and get caught. Okay. So you can imagine because I did at this point, I started asking questions. I was like, so they have hundreds of transactions in a day is what I read pushing on. They were saying thousands of transactions a day. Let's just say a thousand transactions in a day, right? You have different people making these transactions. You have different cab drivers bringing in your marketing, right? You got your one cab driver that you're like, I'll give you free cuts in the line. If you bring in two people, you got to keep the, all that stuff straight because somebody's going to be like, Hey, you owe me three cuts spreadsheets. That's how this criminal enterprise kept it, kept it all in check spreadsheets. And here's one example spreadsheet that was in the court documentation that I have on the screen for you. Now, I'm not going to go through it because it looks like it's pretty complex where they have everybody's name on there. How many, uh, I guess rides or cuts in line it is, and they break it all out so they can make sure that everybody gets paid appropriately and, you know, and, and, and pays up appropriately too. Right. Okay. So there's a point where they're making so much goddamn money where they're bragging about it. They're chatting. Here's a, here's an, a, a quote where, where Abayev says, quote unquote, on our end, this is absolutely a record. Here we almost have 600. We netted at least 500. This has never happened before. This is exactly the level that I want to have every day. Now in the morning, we are going to collect the dough. Okay, so if that, didn't mean much to you. Let me give you the Keith Jones translation. I read that as he was making five to 600 transactions a day where he allows cab drivers to cut the line. So we know it's $10 a piece. So where he's making about five to $6,000 a day on average, it sounds like. And obviously he says in the morning, we're going to collect the dough. So he knows that the money's it's coming in. So immediately I wondered, you got a mastermind and then you got, um, these two Russian hackers over here who gets paid. What does one person get paid more than the others? Surprisingly, it wasn't, they all got paid 25%. There was four people. And when it came in, they split it four ways. They, they basically, well, they split it in half first. They, 50% and sent to the Russians because it was harder to send over there than it was to just split it when they were in America. You've got to have a reason to send things overseas, especially once you start dealing with amounts that are going to be over $10,000. And you see, I'll talk about the amounts in a minute, but they're, they're definitely over $10,000. So they got to be careful not to draw attention when they're taking large amounts of money and going from America to Russia. Okay. When they did this, when they sent these payments from America to Russia, they, for lack of a better term, they gave it like a, 
You know, a physical checks, a memo field where you can kind of write in, you know, groceries or whatever it is you're buying on your check, kind of the same thing in whatever system it was that the government found that they were um, paying out through. So they said that they were paying these people for quote unquote payment for software development over in Russia or quote unquote payment for services rendered. Definitely not payment for hacking JFK's taxi service dispatch system. It did not say that. And it kind of reminded me of that memo field, which by the way, don't tell my wife, but back you know, in college days, whenever I had to pay a friend, I would always write in there sexual favors just to upset them having to go to the bank. Because back when I was in college, paper checks, that was pretty much the only way you could pay people unless you had cash. So you'd always have to write something funny in there. And that's just what you did back in the 90s. All right. So this scheme, like I told you about, was selling hundreds of trips per day. And I saw that it did top out at thousands of trips per day. And if you multiply 10 times a thousand, that's, that's $10,000 that they're making a day and then dividing by four. That's a lot of money to be bringing in per day. So the dispatch system, they have administrators, security people that I think figured this out after a while, or maybe somebody complained, but they were like, oh, ooh, there's people in our system. And they tried to get the people out of their system. And then when you do that, a lot of times you find that there's a lot of deficiencies in your system. So they're trying to push hackers out of their system and they go, Oh, well, this system needs to be updated over here. So that's going to take time and money. And they go, Oh, well, this thing needs to be updated over here. That takes time and money. And while they're doing that between 2019 and 2021, when this hack happened, it's costing a bunch of money. And this is going to be, part of the cost of the restitution later on when you talk about millions of dollars, okay? But as they're also doing this process, the hackers will lose access for a little bit and they'd be like, fuck. All right, well, we got to get back in. And they'd find another way to get in. It might be a different vulnerability or maybe they would try to pay somebody to take malware in there. And some of these new methods, they did say in the core paperwork, like I said, involved corrupting employees at JFK to assist them in gaining access to this dispatch system. So they wanted to basically pay them or maybe social engineer them to get their access to then continue their scheme, right? So the dispatch system, they're, they're dealing with this for two goddamn years while the scheme is going on, right? And then finally, I guess the scheme kind of peters out a little bit for two, two main reasons. It, it, according to what I read in the paperwork, it wasn't like the administrators went in and put the security stopgap in and they were like, ha ha, you are now out of our system. It was more like there was a dramatic air uh, decrease in air travel caused by the COVID pandemic. And that brought down travel. And then there was like competition with things like Uber and Lyft that brought down usage of yellow taxis, which is specifically what this system is used for. Okay. So basically this scheme was kind of petering out on its own, not necessarily because somebody put a stopgap measure in technically in the network, at least from the documentation that I read, right? So you can imagine eventually these people are caught 
So December 5th, 2022, there's an indictment that comes out and there were two counts of conspiracy to, to commit computer intrusion against both of these individuals, Daniel and um, Lehman here, both in the US, okay? Now there's the two defendants in Russia, they were charged, but uh, again, they their documents haven't been unsealed or anything yet because they haven't been arrested. They're, they're still in Russia. Unless they make a mistake and go to a country that's gonna ship them to the US, they're probably gonna be safe if they stay in Russia. So about a year goes by. So now it's October 5th of 2023. And Peter, that's layman, layman here, he pleads guilty. He was what I would call the underling out of the two here. He was the one that collected the money. He pled guilty to one count of the indictment, which was, um, well, they were both the same, but he only, he pled to one count instead of pl pleading to both of them. So it's not like, well, in some of these previous cases that I've brought you week after week, we've had some of these criminals come in there and say, I'll plead guilty to everything. And I go, why? Why would you do that? Well, here they plead guilty to only one of the two counts. So they kind of get something out of pleading guilty here. So Layman comes in and he pleads guilty. And I imagine um, Daniels probably saw that and he was like, oh, oh, he pled guilty. He's probably going to roll on me. Well, fuck that. I'm going to plead guilty too to one count. So within the same month, about a month apart. So um, Daniel was actually on October 30th of 2023. He pled guilty to one count, just like Peter did. So the government was like, fuck yes. All right. All right. They get to walk up to the judge and go, listen to me, judge. This is, this is what we think should happen for sentencing. All right. We think the court should impose a 60-month sentence on Daniel, the mastermind. Now, 60 months is five years. If you don't want to do the math, it's five years. And they said, hey, we think there should be a uh, 57 to 60-month imprisonment to Layman, too, who was the, in my opinion, underling. And I went, oh, oh, okay. So if I measure that sentence-wise, you're basically saying they were both about equally culpable. Right? They're both going to be doing about the same amount of time. If I read it in sentence, in years, right? You're looking at about five years for both of them. And the government says, yeah, yeah, Keith, we are. And even worse, we're coming back and we're saying you got to pay a restitution of $3.4 million. And I went, how did they have a restitution of $3.4 million? That's where the dispatch system had to constantly try to get them out of the system and then apparently upgrade their system to keep them out of the system. That's where that money factors in. If you're curious why it's so much. Now, that's a lot of money. You can imagine cab drivers that are trying to pay off a $120,000 medallion are looking at 3.4 million going, fuck me, how are we gonna pay this? And, and the government says, oh, oh, we're not done. We're not done. You know that money you actually made? And they're like, yeah, yeah. They're like, yeah, we we, we figured it's about $161,000. And they're like, was it? We didn't think it was that much. And the government was like, yeah, yeah, it was $161,000. We want that back too. And they were like, oh, fuck. Okay, so now they're facing not only five years, but they're, 
assuming they can sweat that out, they're looking at millions of dollars in restitution. And if you followed any of these episodes I'm bringing you weekly, my big thing is how do people pay these things? Because even if you get out of prison and you're like, I've served my time. And even if you can get a job, if people overlook the fact that you're an ex-con, how do you pay that amount of money? It's just mind boggling. So that's what the government wants. They want many millions of dollars in restitution. They want them to forfeit the money that they made. And they want five years, basically a little less for layman. So Daniel's attorney gets up there and they're like, uh, holy shit. That's a lot of money. And that's a lot of time. We don't know what to say. We don't know what to say. We're just going to ask for 12 months of home confinement. And then I'm sure the judge kind of raised her eyebrow and the attorney was like, Oh, you want an explanation? Okay. Um, we want home confinement so he can begin to pay off $3 million because who the fuck is going to be able to pay this in any circumstance, let alone if you're an ex con. Okay. And the judge was like, okay, I hear what you had to say. Go ahead and sit down. I will listen to the other party being, you know, the other defendant here. So then Peter, Peter's attorney gets up and goes, um, did they just ask for home confinement? And the judge is like, yeah, yeah. They asked for home confinement on five years and they go, well, shit, we did less than him. We want home confinement too. Why would we ask for anything more than home confinement if he's asking for it? And the judge is like, are you sure? Is that what you're asking for is home confinement? He's like, yes, we also have to pay off $3 million. How are we going to pay it off if we're in jail? Please put us in home confinement. And this is the point where I learned about all the debt that he owed, which was the $120,000 and the medallion and stuff. And I was just like, holy shit. No wonder why he wants home confinement because he, he owes a ton of money. And they're like, listen, he is struggling, struggling. The re only reason why he went down this path is because he was struggling. He was just trying to pay off all these things any way he can. Uber and Lyft, they were breathing down their neck as yellow taxi cab drivers. COVID was there. They owed all this money on the medallions and things. He was just in financial distress. And unfortunately, he made a split second bad decision. And I kind of thought in my mind, well, maybe the first time, but he did it for two fucking years. Okay. So yeah, it's a, it's kind of hard. To, it's kind of hard to say he didn't know. <laughs> so they said, yeah, we realize that, um, we're asking for less than the five years that the government wanted and three years that I think the guidelines recommended, but we just want home confinement because that fucker asked for it. And the judge went, okay, I heard the government. And I heard both defendants in this case. Let me think for a minute. How about four years? And I went, eh, okay, okay. Four years for Daniel. And I was like, okay, okay. For Daniel, that kind of makes sense. He was the mastermind in this. And then the judge came back and said, but we'll do two years for Peter. And I was like, thank God, because it sounded like Daniel was the mastermind. And if you were to sentence them, both exactly the same, I think you're kind of sending the message that they both did the same amount of crime here. So basically four years for Daniel, two years for Peter layman. And they were, um, 
both sentenced for the uh, same amount of supervised release, which was three years. And the judge says, you both are on the hook for this $3.45 million that you owe in restitution. And you both have to give up your $161,000 that you made in this scheme. Woo. So that's some pretty hard time, right? So some final thoughts here, you know, two years. I, when I looked at it originally, I was like, yeah, that felt about right for for layman in this case, four years. I was like, that's border. That's pushing on the line of being kind of stiff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, there was a lot of money and a lot of time went by here, but you look at it in when you, when you put it against the time that other people had served in other episodes that I brought to you, which is really my only frame of reference. When I bring you the, the end of these cases, it's, frame of reference with other cases that I've talked to you about weekly. And when I look at it compared to that, I'm like, yeah, four years for this crime. That's kind of stiff, right? That's kind of stiff. That's getting up there with the people that had tax issues or, or, um, tried to exploit the IRS by fraudulently filing tax returns. But this is $10 at a time at skipping the taxi cab line, which doesn't seem like a lot, but ends up being a lot at the end of the day and screws over a ton of people that actually waited their turn in that line and lost out on all that revenue that they could have been making like these people, right? Now, whereas the prison kind of felt right, maybe just a little much, but right, the restitution, oh my God, did that feel like it was just off the, it was just stratosphere in my opinion. Because the dispatch system, ah, this is just the Keith Jones opinion. They should be on the hook for um, some of that money for fixing and upgrading their systems. That's just daily maintenance and improvements in their security posture, right? You can't go to the first hack in your system and go, hey, the millions of dollars we spent on upgrading our systems, you now owe us for that doesn't seem right. And that's, uh, in my opinion, kind of what they did in this case, based upon what I read in the court documentation. So if you were to subtract those fixes out and then say, that's the restitution, then I could kind of buy that's a little, being a little more fair. Cause you can't, you can't expect a couple of cab drivers at the end of the day to spend or be able to, to pay restitution on millions of dollars. You, I just, I don't see it happening. And the other two that are in Russia, I, again, I'll say it again, but I'm saying it here in my last final thoughts, I think they're going to stay free. If they stay in Russia and Russia never agrees to extradite their people, they're probably going to stay in Russia and not, um, ever face charges. Like we saw the two in this case that they did now. Here's a footnote I wanted to say for the very end, for those of you that watched, this is not the first time this has happened. Now, apparently this dispatch system had been hacked other times and the hackers in those cases charged more to jump the line. And in this case, the criminals in this case, they said, Hey, we got to kind of undercut these other people. We're only going to charge $10 to jump the line. 
And that was how they made the money in this case. I didn't want to confuse the issue with you and say that there were other hackers out there and stuff during this case. But I do want to tell you now that this wasn't the first time it happened. And this is kind of why I was like, are you really going to charge them restitution of millions of dollars if other groups are known to do this against this dispatch system? I think somewhere along the lines, this is you can't just charge this group with this restitution because it's just, it, I'm going to stop there. I'm going to stop there. If you enjoyed this episode, which I hope you did, please like subscribe. If you're on YouTube, if you're on the other platforms catching this, please follow thumbs up, whatever it is on your platform, whatever the positive affirmation is. I appreciate it. That just helps get this video and audio in the front of other people that might enjoy true crime with an electronic spin that's not serious. I tell you serious, truthful things, but I tell you, Tiana, not serious tone. Okay. So if you like that, please just do that for me. I'm not going to ask you to buy anything or anything else. Just resharing and liking and following and subscribing. That does wonders in getting these type of videos in front of new, a new audience that wouldn't have known about it without your help. And I appreciate it so much. So with that, I hope you come back next week. We're going to pick another just bonkers case like this and go through it and hopefully have a little fun with it. So I hope to see you then. Thanks. Thanks.